Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch and I'm the editor here at the Leaders Performance Institute. In today's episode, I caught up with writer, speaker and one-on-one performance coach Brad Stolberg, who has just co-authored a new book with Steve Magnus titled The Passion Paradox, a guide to going all in, finding success and discovering the benefits of an unbalanced life. Brad, who is based in the Bay Area of Northern California, told me that the central tenet of this book is about learning to control your passion so that it doesn't control you. And if you can control your passion, then it might be the most powerful force not only for performance, but a good, fulfilling life. With a growing emphasis on well-being across elite sport, this really might be the right book at the right time. Curiously, Brad and Steve started on this book before their last book, Peak Performance, had even hit the shelves. We touch upon that here, and over the course of our conversation, we also delved into the value of meditation in understanding and controlling your passion, as well as the steps athletes can take to prevent their passion becoming a counterproductive obsession. There's plenty more of that in the passion paradox itself, which is available from Penguin Random House here in the UK. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and I'll catch you all next time. Brad, welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. John, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. It's an absolute pleasure. But first, let me start by congratulating you and Steve on your new book, The Passion Paradox, which details how people in all walks of life can live productively with passion. Yeah, thanks. It's, um, it's wonderful to have the book out in the universe. And how exactly did the book come into being? I mean, you hadn't actually finished your last book, Peak Performance, when you started on this one. So it, it 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 came to be. It's a it's a funny story, um, and it goes to show that um, we we really wrote the book not because we had this topic figured it out, but to try to figure it out for ourselves. So we we had written peak performance, and my co-author Steve uh, is based in a different geography with me. So we had planned a ten day period when we would be shoulder to shoulder to to work on edits for peak performance, and our editor at the publishing house was a little bit behind in the queue. So he wrote us a note saying that he read the manuscript and, and the book was great and there are just some minor edits that he'll get to us in a few months. Uh, and we're first-time authors. So instead of um, celebrating and saying, wow, our manuscript's been accepted, the editor loves the book, we, uh, we kind of did that for 20 minutes and then we looked at each other and we said, well, we got to get back to work. What are we going to do next? And then we asked ourselves, why do we have to get back to work? Why, why, where does this drive to keep pushing come from? Uh, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it neutral? And um, we kind of looked at each other and smiled and said, oh, wait, maybe this is what we should be working on. And we, we dove into the research on desire and passion and performance. Uh, and we found a gap in the literature that, that there really hadn't been that much work done um, compiling a, an integrated theory of, of passion. The, as you said, the pros, the cons, the good, the bad. And having found that gap in the literature... You start the book with the revelation that your view on the topic of passion actually puts you at odds with John Bon Jovi, of all people. Can you explain how? So John Bon Jovi is one of um, is one of many high performers that has been invited to give commencement speeches uh, as students matriculate on from university or college. And a common theme of those speeches, and, and just really all inspirational, motivational talks, is to find and follow your passion. And to follow your passion with, with, with no regard for what could happen, live true to your dream. And uh, what I found in, in researching and reporting and writing this book is that that advice is, is, is way too simple and, and mostly wrong. Um, a, a big theme in the book is actually that you don't necessarily want to follow your passion. You want your passion to follow you. 
and, and the notion of just finding your passion um, can be really misguiding and harmful for people because it turns out that if you expect to find your passion or find something that, uh, that, that makes you tick and is perfect right off the bat, uh, you'll probably just end up looking forever because most endeavors that become passions, they don't start out beautiful. Uh, you have to pound the stone and grind away to develop a passion. Uh, so perhaps better advice than find and follow your passion at all costs would be cultivate your interests, see if they turn into passions, and be very careful living with them. I see. And why are people wired to find and pursue passions in the first place? So there's there's a fair amount of research on this, and, and there are a few theories that complement each other. Uh, one theory is more neurobiological, and... Um, that theory posits that individuals that are very driven or very passionate, um, what I like to call pushers, that just struggle to be content, that want to push toward the next thing always, uh, they likely are insensitive to a neurochemical called dopamine. And dopamine is the neurochemical that is implicated in striving. Uh, it's the neurochemical that doesn't necessarily make us feel good when we achieve something, but that makes us love the chase and um, the pursuit of something. So if you, are, if you are wired to be insensitive to that neurochemical, you need more of it to feel good. So how do you get more of it is you keep on pushing. Uh, again, that's a very neurobiological theory. A complementary theory is that individuals that may have experienced um, some kind of childhood trauma, and I want to pause here because trauma is a very relative word. Trauma can mean that you lost a parent or that you grew up in an orphanage. But trauma could also just mean that you got bullied in school, or you were the youngest of four kids and you felt a little bit neglected. Any kind of perceived childhood trauma can later in life turn into a huge passion. And what the, what the research shows is that individuals that feel like they had that experience in their childhood, they have this rage to master. It's almost like what they want to prove themselves to the world, that I can do this, I can push, I've got it. And... When those two things collide, then you have an extremely passionate person. And those two things uh, individually can also give rise to passion. I think it's worth saying that not everyone that is very passionate necessarily is insensitive to dopamine and or had that type of childhood. But I think that those two things are often common in very passionate people. It's a fascinating topic. And of course, here at Leaders, we want to bring it back to sport. So perhaps with athletes in mind, Brad, how do those with passion kick on beyond childhood or adolescent brilliance? How are these athletes who reach that elite level controlling their passion in order to sustain and channel it effectively? So I think that there's a few, there's a few things here. Um, and there, there are really three big topics that the book addresses uh, that I think are integral for athletes as well as for coaches um, and just in people involved in sport to understand. Uh, these are the three paradoxes of passion. So again, the first is that you don't just magically find your passion. Um, there's research that shows that about 80% of people expect that they're going to find a passion, that they're just going to magically fall into an endeavor or a pursuit that feels great from the get-go and that they will not experience lows in. And what ends up happening, again, is that you're constantly seeking or looking for that thing, or it's like when the honeymoon period ends, and you have your first challenge, you assume, oh, this must not be for me. I'm going to go on to the next thing. So much better than that mindset is what's called a development mindset, very similar to Carol Dweck's growth mindset, which is that, hey, this thing that I'm pursuing, 
it might not feel great right away. And it might take 20 years to blossom into a full-blown passion. But if I'm pursuing it and I'm putting in the work and I'm enjoying the process, then passion can emerge. So it's really about shifting the mindset from find your passion to cultivate your passion. Then the second big paradox is that passion is always a good thing. Passion can be a good thing. It can be an ultimate life energizing force, but it can also be a curse. And this is so important to stress. This is the difference between if you are more driven by external results and validation than you are by the activity itself. And it's a very, very subtle thing. Most people start out doing something. Let's take a, uh, a basketball player or a footballer, for example, because they're passionate about that sport. And then they start to achieve some positive results. And what can often happen is you become more passionate about the fame, the recognition, the validation you get from those positive results than the sport itself. And this is the difference between what's called harmonious passion or the good kind of passion and obsessive passion or the bad kind of passion. Harmonious passion is associated with life satisfaction, well-being, lasting performance. Obsessive passion is associated with burnout, cheating, anxiety, and depression. And again, no one chooses to be obsessively passionate. It's just that once you get those good results, if you're not careful and you're not aware of it, the brain kind of latches onto them and starts craving more. And then you're chasing these results that are outside of your control. That's a very, very tough emotional roller coaster for an athlete to be on. And we can come back to this and discuss it in more detail, but I mentioned there are three paradoxes. The third paradox is this notion that the two most common kind of self-help, self-development performance sayings are find and follow your passion and be balanced. But by definition, passion is antithetical to being balanced. If you are pursuing something relentlessly, you are not balanced. So how do you reconcile these two things? Because it is true that being balanced can be very important for a good life, and there's a time and a place where you need to be balanced. But on the flip side, if you want to perform at elite levels, you do want to be passionate. Um, so those are the three main paradoxes. So in light of these paradoxes, how can coaches empathize and support highly driven athletes in channeling their passions effectively? So I think the first comes around this difference between harmonious and obsessive passion. Uh, these two things are on a spectrum. I've yet to meet somebody that is completely harmoniously passionate. Um, athletes, they live in a world where results are very public and where results matter. That's how you get paid. That's how the team wins. Uh, it's not that results shouldn't matter. It's just that results shouldn't be the sole force driving the ship. Uh, I like to say that if 51% of the motivation is intrinsic, in about getting better and about a joy and a love of the pursuit itself in 49% is about winning. That's a good balance. The problem becomes when it shifts and suddenly 80% is about winning and only 20% is about love of the pursuit itself. There's some fascinating research that shows that athletes that score high in obsessive passion are much more likely to engage in illegal performance enhancing drugs. And that makes total sense because if you are craving this validation and results and that becomes at risk or a threat, you'll basically do anything to close that gap and to get it back. Uh, so what can coaches then do to help athletes keep their passion harmonious? Um, I think that there's a few really important things. The first is to focus on coming back to the work itself. And what I mean by this is after a big win or a tough loss, 
you want to give the athlete a good 24 to 48 hours, a couple days even, to celebrate the win. I mean, there's joy in winning or to grieve the loss because bad losses are hard. But after that period of, let's say, one to three days, get the athlete back to doing the sport itself. Because when you're doing the sport itself, it sends like an embodied reminder to you that, hey, I actually love football. I love basketball. I love baseball. I love soccer. If you're in America, <laughs> I don't necessarily what, what drives me isn't winning or losing. What drives me is the love for mastery in the sport itself. Um, it's easy to say and intellectually understand that, but to actually feel it when you're in a competitive environment where you're winning and losing is really hard. So I'm a huge believer in the research supports this. It short windows to celebrate wins or grieve defeats, but then get back to the work. Uh, very much related to this is to adopt a process over outcomes mindset. If you judge your athletes on the process, on how well they executed what they can control, the preparation, the training, the mindset, the sleep, then the outcomes really shouldn't matter because they will fall into place naturally. They'll take care of themselves. So the outcomes become information that maybe you use to tweak the process, but they're not these be-all, end-all things. And then something else that I think that is so important for coaches to realize is the lost virtue of patience. A long career of mastery is going to have ups and downs. It's going to have plateaus, peaks, and valleys. And I think that the current culture is so focused on now, 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 whether it's social media, um, quick acquisitions in sports, that it's tough to zoom out and take the long view. But that long view really enables passion to be harmonious because you're not chasing these point in time results, high, low, high, low. Again, you get off that roller coaster and you start to view the pursuit as a, a path of mastery that is going to have all of those things and encompass all of those things. And a coach that can help an athlete hold all of those things is much more likely to keep that athlete's passion harmonious. You put me in mind, Brad, of the legendary San Francisco 49ers coach, Bill Walsh, who of course had that book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. Love it. Exactly. Um, and again, I want to be careful because I know I'm talking to coaches that, 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 that get paid based on if they win or lose. So this isn't to say that winning or losing doesn't matter. What this is to say is that winning or losing, that's information to change your process. But you really can't control who's going to show up that day on the other team and, and play their asses off and have a groundbreaking game. You can't control the weather if you're an endurance athlete. Um, so it's really about focusing on the things that you can control and judging yourself based on those things. An example from my own life in writing is I catch myself slipping into obsessive passion all the time. Uh, when I have a new book or a big essay come out, it's very easy for me to sit there and check social media to see what people are saying about the book or to update my sales rank to see how many copies are selling. And when I do that, it's like ego candy. It feels good at first. But after a few hours, I kind of feel gross and empty. <laughs> and if I do that for too long, I get like in this cycle of checking. Um, and I think that's very similar to an athlete or a coach that is so focused on this thing that's outside of their control that then you get on this roller coaster ride. And another thing you and Steve talk about in this book is prevention and promotion mindsets. What is the difference and what should athletes be aspiring to? So a, a prevention mindset is a mindset that is trying to mitigate loss and fear. It is from a place of defense and protection. A promotion mindset is playing to win. I guess an even simpler way to say it is the difference between playing not to lose or playing to win. And there's all sorts of research that shows in the vast majority of situations, a mindset where you're playing to win 
is much more suitable to lasting peak performance. Um, when you're playing not to lose, the emotions that normally accompany that are tightness, constriction, and fear. It's very hard to perform well out of a place of tightness, constriction, and fear. When you're playing to win, the emotions that accompany that seem to be openness, spaciousness, joy, and love. And that's when those flow states and peak performance can occur. Now, again, I want to be nuanced here because I know these are high-level coaches. There are exceptions. If you are trying to protect a big lead in the fourth quarter, yeah, you might go into a prevent defense and play not to lose for a couple of minutes. But over the course of a career, if you're an athlete that's playing not to lose, you will not get the same level of performance if you can shed some of that fear and really go out there and play to win. And again, subtle shift, but I think that I like to talk about this emotionally more than logically because I think people can feel this. If you just think about what it's like playing not to lose, most people report some sort of tension in their body. If you think about what it's like playing to win, most people report expansiveness and openness. And it's much easier to perform well in the latter situation. And what have you observed in athletes when it comes to failure and the fear of failure? How did the very best process those feelings, those emotions? So I think it comes down to this, this view of passion and one's career as a journey uh, in, in a path of mastery. If you're on this path of mastery that really knows no end, where you are pursuing your passion productively, failures sting very much, but they're not the end of the game. They become information. And what feels like a failure today, tomorrow, this week, this month, maybe even this year, 10 years from now, you will have learned so much from that. So it's about this this zooming out and viewing the career as this long-term thing. I mean, we're all walking to the same place, which is our graves. And when you think of it like that, then there really are no true failures. The end failure is when our hearts stop beating. We, our bodies fail. Our organ systems fail. So adopting that mindset, it can be really liberating and help shed that fear and let you play to win to connect these two topics. Because again, failures hurt and you should grieve them and you should try to figure out what went wrong. But if you realize that, hey, this is about a lifetime of work, of, of becoming, of mastery, then those failures kind of take on a different texture, a different tone, and they start to be more points of information that can be learned from versus devastating setbacks. A few moments ago, Brad, you talked about slipping into obsessive passion yourself, and you dedicate an entire section of your book to this idea of self-awareness. Can you explain, please, why it's so important when it comes to assessing passion, this idea of self-awareness? So this is a, this is a really important topic in the book, and I'm glad that you're bringing it up. Um, so when, when you are passionate and when you are in the pursuit of a passion, whether you are an athlete, entrepreneur, creative person, or a lover, even if this is romantic passion, what tends to happen is the inertia of that thing can totally take over. And you start to become blind to things outside of it. So if you are training to make an Olympic team, all you see for some people is training to make an Olympic team. And there's this huge momentum that's carrying you. And what happens is if you get sucked into that momentum fully, you lose the ability to see outside of it. And when you can't see outside of it, A, you struggle to make objective decisions about training that's actually good for you. And B, you fail to evaluate trade-offs in life. Huh, should I really go for another Olympic team? Or is it time to start a family? Am I going to regret not starting a family? You don't, you don't, you're not able to honestly evaluate these questions because you're in this tornado, this storm of passion. 
Whereas if you can if you can develop enough self-awareness, what happens is instead of being in the storm, you can step back and see the storm from afar. And that little bit of space really helps you make sound decisions on how you are going to train, how you are going to pursue your passion, and also the things that you're giving up as a result. And the answer isn't necessarily to change or to stop or to quit or to prioritize other things in your life. It's just that once you have this view, you can be a lot more at peace. Another way to put it is it's the difference between watching a fast-paced action movie where you know you're feeling sensations in your body, you're aroused, it's like you're in the movie, but you still know that you're watching the movie versus being in the movie. And I think for passionate individuals, it's a really good practice to spend just some time, it doesn't have to be much, I don't know, an hour a week, trying to step outside of the movie and just see it from afar a little bit, create some space. Um, so you can evaluate your training practices, you can evaluate what you're giving up, you can evaluate whether your passion's obsessive or harmonious. When you're in the thick of things and passion's driving you, you are just go, 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 go. Uh, maybe your passion's becoming obsessive and you don't even see it. Whereas if you can step back and put on some more objective eyes that only come through cultivating self-awareness, it gives you that space to, to more rigorously evaluate what you're doing and, and make decisions as a result that, that I think are wiser decisions. So essentially, if you have that self-awareness, you can start to work towards developing that mastery mindset. 100%. And, and, and again, it's easier to, this, this is a theme throughout the book and, and, and something I'm proud of in the book, is it's easier to intellectually understand these things than to do these things. It's very easy to say, oh, my I'm going to keep my passion harmonious or I'm going to become self-aware. I have self-awareness. But these mindsets, they're based off of practices. You can't just say that you want to be self-aware and then become self-aware. So some of the practices in the book that I think are really powerful for, for how do you actually develop this self-awareness, one is to regularly reflect on mortality. So the, 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 the high-level performers that I coach, and, and I make a practice of this myself, we read one memoir of somebody that is in the dying process every year. And coming out of reading a book like that, it becomes crystal clear what actually matters in your life, what's important, what should you be spending time on. Another way to gain this kind of self-awareness is to spend time in nature completely disconnected. There's something about the awe that is experienced when you are in nature that helps kind of just reset your view on things. I've never met someone that doesn't come back from a day hike or a backpacking trip with kind of a, a, a not necessarily they're going to do anything different, but with a clearer view of what matters in their life and how they're pursuing the things that they're passionate about. I think a third practice that's very beneficial is meditation. A regular meditation practice allows you to see the thought patterns in the subsequent emotions that come up regularly. And you can kind of identify what are just habitual habit energy weather patterns that you should ignore versus what are things that are actually crying for your attention. And these are practices. This is not about saying, oh, I'm going to be a self-aware person. I know myself, if I don't read books on, on dying, if I don't spend a day in nature once a month, and if I don't meditate, I start to lose self-awareness. Not because I'm weak or I don't understand this or because I don't have willpower, but because I think we like to talk about these concepts as mindsets when in fact they're actually practices. It's very interesting that you talk about meditation and mindfulness there. It feels as if the sports performance community is starting to really see the value of both meditation and mindfulness these days. Yeah. So in, in, in mindfulness, um, I, I think it's a wonderful practice. I think that there are still misconceptions around mindfulness. I think that a lot of people think that the point of meditation 
is to relax or to make yourself feel good or even to make yourself focus better. Those can be byproducts of meditation. But if you look back at the, the ancient Buddhist text, the, the, the point of meditation is to step back and view what's happening in your brain and body is something a little bit separate from yourself. So to create that space, and as a result of creating that space, you can start to live more wisely. So for me, my meditation practice, if I feel super relaxed, that's a great plus. But most of the time when I sit, I just am, I'm, I'm observing from afar these habitual thinking patterns and thought patterns. And if you do that regularly over time, again, you start to gain the wisdom to know what's just noise and what actually matters, what needs your attention. That's a very interesting point. And if you speak to the mental skills departments across the world of elite sports, they talk about introducing athletes to meditation for the first time. And oftentimes they've struggled or they couldn't concentrate or their mind wandered. But they've also tried to manage their expectations because they really do perceive that this is an important and can be a significant performance tool. It can be. And I think that that's that 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 when I when I talk to people about meditation and, and we write this in the book, your mind, you should struggle. <laughs> and the people that need meditation most are the people that struggle most. Um, the first six months of my meditation practice, I couldn't pay attention to my breath for more than two seconds without being distracted by thoughts. And I would have thoughts of despair. I'd have thoughts of anxiety. I'd have thoughts of what am I going to eat for dinner? I'd have thoughts for did I meet my book deadline? I'd have thoughts about how lucky I am to have a beautiful wife. Then I'd have thoughts about the fact that I'm going to die and become very sad. And it's just like you can hear my pace of speaking. It's like a, a pinball machine in your brain. And that's the whole point, because if you sit like that for six months, eventually you can step back and be like, whoa, like my brain just throws up this shit all the time and I don't have to pay attention to it. I don't have to take everything my brain throws up seriously. And that is so freeing as an athlete. Because then when you're evaluating a career, again, you can make more wise decisions. You don't have to kind of be blown around by the changing weather patterns. And then in performance settings, when you have doubts, you can, you can wave to that doubt. And you can say, oh, hi, good friend. You're the same doubt that comes up every morning. I don't have to take you so seriously. One final area I'd like to touch upon, Brad, is the question of storytelling. You and Steve suggest that all people should write their own stories. The question of narrative continually comes up at sports organizations. So why is it so important and how do you begin to write your own story? So we become the stories that we tell ourselves in, in many ways. There's research that shows that if, if you show a, a human that has, um, that has a brain disorder, that, that, that the hemispheres of the brain can't speak to each other, um, if you show them, let's say, uh, spilled water on the ground, they will come up with a story for why the water spilled. They'll say, oh, my wife was here and she dropped the water. That didn't happen. Their brain can't communicate to actually know what happened. The fact that the researcher just poured the water, but they need people need a story. So even if your brain is working normally, the, the point of that is that we think in stories. We, we tell stories about what happens in our lives. And those stories that we tell ourselves, they become self-fulfilling prophecies. So again, if the story around one's career as an athlete is I need to win, I need to achieve, or else my sponsors are going to cut me, or I'm going to get cut from the team, that is a very fear-based story. And then failure fits into that story as, oh crap, I failed, things are going downhill. Whereas if the story that we tell ourselves is I've got one life to live, I'm so fortunate to be doing what I love, there are going to be really hard times, and there are going to be times when I'm scared. 
but this is all part of a greater path of mastery. Then failures, again, they become more like information points than these devastating events. And the same thing with transitions. Transition out of sport is a huge issue. Uh, most sports athletes are lucky if they're still competing in, in an elite level at age 35. A lot of athletes are retiring right when all of their peers are just starting to hit stride in their career. So when you retire after pouring your whole identity, your whole self into this pursuit, into this passion, if the story that you tell yourself is that, there's going to be an enormous gaping hole that's going to be really hard to fill in one's life. Whereas if you can craft a narrative that I'm a really driven person, I'm a passionate person, the lessons that I'm learning from sport can apply elsewhere. And sport is a huge part of my life, but it's just that. It's a part of my life. It's a huge part of identity, but it's not my whole identity. That story then frees you up to transition and try open thing, try other things with an open mind and open heart versus having a transition where you feel like the one thing that you know how to do, you can no longer do. Athletes that are able to craft those compelling narratives that see sport as just a chapter of their life. And again, I don't want to minimize it. It can be a very important chapter but not the whole thing, they tend to transition out of sport and have less issues with depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. Whereas athletes whose entire identity, their whole story is fused into that sport, they tend to suffer mightily at times of transition. And I suppose the moral of the story is that passion need not be a toxic thing. No, passion's a wonderful thing. Um, and it's funny because, you know, this book, this book calls out many of the myths around passion. And I think passion becomes a toxic thing when it's taken lightly. And when these nuanced and complexities aren't understood in practice, but when you develop passion, when you are self-aware enough to pursue it harmoniously, when you don't judge yourself, when you catch yourself craving that result and becoming obsessive, and you just correct it with some practices, you get back to the work itself, you reflect on why you got started, you think about your process, not the outcome. And when you keep enough self-awareness to be able to view the norm from the outside every once in a while, instead of just being in it then passion is this, this beautiful gift. I like to think of it, it's like rocket fuel. And if you point the rocket in the right direction, it's going to fly really, really high. But if you're not guiding that rocket, if you're not controlling the rocket, then the rocket's going to take you on a wild ride that might not always be the best ride. So I think a, a, a real kind of takeaway from the book is this book is about learning how to control your passion so it doesn't control you. And if you can control your passion, then it might be, the most powerful force for not only performance, but also for a good, fulfilling life. But if you have passion and you can't control it, it's a slippery slope to something that looks more like addiction. And I think this might be a wonderful time to wrap things up. Brad, thank you so much for your time and for speaking to me today. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed the conversation. 